Life Audio. Welcome to Truth Drive with Doug Grotheis. I am today going to read a paper, an academic paper called Systematic Theology and Anti-Intellectualism for the Life of the Mind and the Mission of the Church. At Truth Tribe, we, we attempt to seek the truth through reason and evidence. And there's a big problem in much of the Christian world, particularly the evangelical world, and that is anti-intellectualism. So I'd like to read a paper on this. I read this at an Evangelical Theological Society some years ago. It's not yet been published. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Few mistakes are more crippling to Christian witness within the Christian community than anti-intellectualism. Few theological errors violate more theological doctrines more radically. In its Pulitzer Prize-winning work, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, historian Richard Hofstadler defined anti-intellectualism as a, quote, resentment of the life of the mind and those who are considered to represent it and a disposition to constantly minimize the value of that life, unquote. I agree, but we'll add a few nuances to this. An anti-intellectual demeans or even rejects the worth of reasons, arguments, and evidence in the shaping of individual beliefs and overall worldviews, and holds in contempt or derision those who insist that the intellectual should be, the intellect should be fed, not starved. Few who read this passage are in danger of anti-intellectualism, but many outside the Christian academy are in cognitive jeopardy. But this argument will further the defense of the sanctified intellect so that the mission of God may go forth in even greater power. Heresies are not at issue. Denying the deity of Christ, for example, is far worse than affirming it while refusing to defend it rationally. The Bible-believing, anti-intellectual preacher at least preaches the truth of Scripture, we hope. Our model is Paul, who thanked God even when people were preaching the gospel from bad motives. Philippians 1, 15-18 Many anti-intellectual preachers, teachers, and writers act out of love and do not even share the bad motives that Paul spoke of. The gospel has divine power apart from apologetics and systematic theology. Thank God. Paul was no anti-intellectual. See Acts 17, 16 through 34, his marvelous Morris Hill sermon. He was under orders to proclaim and defend Christ to anyone. However, 
he never neglected the power of the message itself. See Romans 1, 14-17. Just as it, it is better to preach Christ out of love than out of selfish ambition, so it is better to preach Christ and defend Christianity with a healthy respect for the intellect than to degrade the intellect. One must make this argument in many ways, but systematic theology is my vehicle for countering anti-intellectualism and replacing it with a holy, vigorous, and rigorous life of the mind. Another way of putting it is that we need a biblical theology of the mind. First, the doctrines of God and Christ. God is a personal, rational, and relational being. God is the I am who I am of Exodus 3.14, meaning that God is a he, not an it. God is a cognizant, self-reflective agent. Unlike any other personal being, God is self-existent, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, and always-present. However, none of these uniquely divine attributes in any way diminishes God's personality in any dimension of his character. God is rather tripersonal, a trinity. One God in three persons, trinity in unity and unity in trinity, as the Athanasian Creed has it. From eternity, the co-equal and co-internal members of the trinity have communicated and loved each other. The Gospel of John reveals that God is logical. That is, he does not and cannot violate the nature of his own being. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life is the light of all mankind. John 1, 1-4 Logos, as used by John for word, means a unit of intelligible meaning, as in a word in a sentence. But further, it refers to logic and rationality. The Greek philosophers used logos to refer to the ordering principle of the cosmos, that which kept it from being a chaos. Their logos, however, lacked personality. It was more a principle than a rational agent, with consciousness and will. The apostle John, however, marshals this philosophical term to mean the divine and personal being who orders and structures the universe and keeps it from being a multiverse or a chaos. The Logos is rational and revelational. He is not a self-enclosed principle, but a communicative person whose words can be trusted in time and for eternity. John further discloses the significance of the eternal Logos for cosmic history. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is John 1.14. See also Philippians 2, 5-11. God is a personal and logical being who reveals himself so that those who care to notice can know his glory. They can know God in this way without denying their senses or their intellect. They do, however, have to look past their pride and worldliness. But these qualities are not essential to the human being. They result, rather, from the fall. John goes on to pen most, one of the most significant verses in the entirety of Scripture. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, 
and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. John 1.18, has made him known. The Logos is the divine agent of knowledge about God. The one who knows the Father face to face, which is the force of the Greek, has revealed him, has made him known. John amplifies this idea in his first epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. This is not the language of mysticism or anti-intellectualism. No. Christ has made the Father known, known in space-time history. The Creator does not require the suspension of the rational or perceptive faculties in order to know who He is and what He has done. There is no room for anti-intellectualism, since God crafted the human intellect after the model of His own. Jesus taught and lived out the truth perfectly as the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6. Philosophy did not master Him, He mastered philosophy. Jesus was a thinker, even a philosopher, because he possessed a well-integrated worldview, which he defended rationally before the most learned men of his day. Matthew, chapter 22, narrates Jesus intellectually outthinking his contemporaries on three significant issues, what we would call church and state, the nature of the resurrected person, and the identity of Jesus as the son of David. And I have developed this more in my book on Jesus. Jesus never called anyone to have blind faith or to deny her ability to reason. Rather, Jesus exemplified sound thinking and summoned his hearers to hear, understand, and obey his teachings. We often read in the Gospels that Jesus amazed his hearers because of his intelligence and wisdom. Matthew seven twenty-eight and 29. Also, Mark 1.22, John 7.15. When Paul gives the following warning, he is not forswearing rational thought. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. Colossians 2, 8-10 Hollow philosophy is merely earthly and hostile to Christ and his kingdom. But godly philosophy, as seen in Jesus and Paul himself, is infused and inspired by the God of truth. 2. Pneumatology, the Holy Spirit, and Knowledge Perhaps no other doctrine has been more misunderstood with respect to the value and significance of the intellect than pneumatology. Since the Holy Spirit reveals what our natural intellect could not know, people conclude that the Holy Spirit is hostile to the intellect in itself. Therefore, faith, which is given by the Spirit, is supposedly opposed to reason, since reason is merely natural, human, and corrupted by sin. This topic is vast, but a few points suffice. 
Since Jesus identifies the Spirit as the Spirit of Truth three times in the Gospel of John, we know that he guides erring mortals into the truth of salvation and godly living. Consider one statement by Jesus. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. John 14, 16-17 The Helper helps us to know truth, since he is the Spirit of truth. Since humans are made in the divine image and likeness, their natural endowments are conductive or conducive to knowledge. We were made to know through the use of our God-given and God-sustained faculties, intellectual and perceptual. We live in a knowledge-friendly universe. When a sinful human is born again of the Holy Spirit, he or she is forgiven, justified, adopted into God's family, and is given the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 Consequently, it follows that the Spirit of Truth restores our cognitive faculties and leads us in the virtues necessary for knowing what matters most. And here, think of the discipline of virtue epistemology. When Paul writes about God's wisdom making a mockery of human wisdom, he is not opposing the intellect per se, or in principle, but instead he is warning of its corruption through pride and the spirit of autonomy from God. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 1 Corinthians 2, 16. The Holy Spirit opens our being to God's truth. He need not destroy the rational element of the image of God to do so. In fact, that would pit God against his own creation. 3. Anthropology of Humanity and Knowing Having considered God, we come now quite naturally to the nature of human beings, whom God has created in his image and likeness. We cannot understand humanity without understanding deity, since God made man. The Bible alone tells us that human beings are made in the image and likeness of their creator. No other religious text teaches this. Islam, in fact, considers the idea blasphemy or shirk, since it would place a created being too close to the being of Allah. The Westminster Confession puts it well in chapter 4, section 2. After God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endowed with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it. And yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Humans are made in God's personal, rational, and relational image. As such, their intellect is fitted to know God. Aristotle rightly wrote in the Metaphysics that, quote, man by nature desires to know, unquote. And I have a chapter on that statement in my book, Philosophy in Seven Sentences. And God by nature desires to be known. But God can only be known by humans if humans are made by God to know God. Humans come to know God in creation and in redemption through their distinctively human faculties, including the intellect. 
the doctrine of sin and knowledge. Sin mars and effaces the image of God, but it cannot erase the divine image since humans are the image of God. It is not a part of them. They are the image of God. If the image was destroyed, there would be no one left. But what is sin? The Apostle John defines it simply. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3, verse 4. Sin is first rebellion against God's authority. Adam and Eve sin by rejecting God's authority over them and instead heeding the lies of the serpent, who had already sinned. See Genesis 3, 1-7, Revelation 12. Sin brings about discord among humans. Love is broken by selfishness. The Westminster Larger Catechism says this, Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. Sin is pervasive and is deadly, affecting the entire person. Has sin utterly disabled the mind of the unregenerate? We know from Scripture that one, Human beings know God by virtue of creation and conscience. See Romans 1 and 2. However, they suppress this knowledge because of sin and create God substitutes. 2. Fallen creatures are dead in their trespasses and sins. That's in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, what follows from 1 and 2? Some claim that sin utterly disables the intellect from grasping rational arguments that lead to the truth of the gospel. This is called the noetic effect of sin. On this, consider the ministry of Jesus. If rational arguments are no use for believing the gospel, then Jesus would not use them to convince sinners of this truth. Jesus did marshal rational arguments to reason with sinners. Therefore, A, rational arguments are not useless for gospel purposes. Therefore, B, Since Jesus used this argument, and he is our example of righteousness, we should use them too. It's pretty straightforward. This argument is deductively valid by virtue of modus tollens. In my book on Jesus, I argue in detail that Jesus was a philosopher who engaged in rational arguments on the issues of moment of his day. One may simply read and reflect on Jesus' pattern of response concerning three key issues of his day as discussed in Matthew 22, to see this point, and I already mentioned that. Section 5, Soteriology and Sanctification, Redeemed to Know. In Being Human, The Nature of Spiritual Experience, Ranald Macaulay and Jerome Bars advance a simple but profound thesis. The Christian's redemption through Jesus Christ is meant to restore our true humanity, which is now by corrupted by our rebellion against our Maker. The restoration of human beings does not lift us out of our skins, out of our history, out of our families, or out of our status as creatures in culture. Listen to Paul once again. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans 12, verse 2. Some say that Christ did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. The quip has its force. 
We are not redeemed by our works or our character or through mystical experience. Ephesians 2, 1-7 However, this statement is a false dichotomy, and thus fallacious. Christ came to make us alive in Him and to become more like Him as we are led by the Holy Spirit, nurtured and exhorted in the Church and taught by the Holy Scriptures, to exposit the riches of salvation offered to us in Christ, would require volumes of writing and will take an eternity of praise, worship, and adoration to fathom for the elect. But consider but one passage. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1, 9, and 10. Notice that, growing in the knowledge of God. Paul prays that his readers would grow in the knowledge of God's will through the Holy Spirit so that they would be fruitful for God in all areas of life. This requires a holy earnestness that seems daunting. But through God, the Son, we possess redemption, the pardon of all all of our sins. To work out the implications of our standing, Before God, we need to think rightly about God and ourselves. The knowledge of God is the cornerstone for knowing in the right way anything that ought to be known. We must know what the gospel is in order to believe it and to receive Christ as Lord and to defend it through apologetics. Moreover, apologetics may help the skeptical to become believers by answering objections and giving rational support for the Christian worldview. See 1 Peter 3, 15-16, and my book, Christian Apologetics, 2nd edition. Section 6, Ecclesiology, A Place to Know. Without Christ, there is no church, since it is the body of Christ, which Christ himself has won through his saving achievements. As Paul says to the elders in his farewell address at Ephesus, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Acts 20, verse 28. The church is many things besides the body of Christ. The Apostle Peter paints a vivid picture of those bought by Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 1 Peter 2, 9. The New Testament also refers to the church as the church of the firstborn, the bridegroom of Christ, the temple of God, Ephesians 2, 21-22, and much more. See my chapter in defense of the church in Christian apologetics. I will expand on Paul's claim in his first epistle to Timothy. Paul writes, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed... I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. 1 Timothy 3, 14-15 Paul writes to establish Timothy in doctrine and right conduct in the church, which he describes in terms of grounding the truth. As God's people, the church then serves as the steadfast bank of revealed truth before the watching world. 
Ecclesiology means more than leaders teaching and preaching with a spirit-filled intellect. We must worship in spirit and in truth as we gather in religious services and as we scatter to serve the world. But without the sanctification of the intellect, the Holy Spirit of truth is quenched and God's mission is limited. Point seven, eschatology, think well forever. This case is simple. In the final manifestation of God's kingdom, his people will be freed from every, from the very presence of sin, within and without. Death will die. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Living in resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth means that worship and cultural endeavor will not be hindered by the manifold distortions of sin. The blinkered intellect and the corrupted heart will be done away with forever. Praise God. We will know as we are known. Since sin never aided the intellect, nothing of cognitive worth will be lost. The clear river of life will flow and God's people will serve God and the Lamb forever. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Point 8. Conclusion. One could go on to develop each of these theological themes and to add more topics from systematic theology. However, this essay suffices to refute any anti-intellectualism in the name of Christianity. Our Christian witness to the world must not be intellectually shabby, sloppy, or silly. The cross will always be an offense to human pride, but that is no excuse for wrongly multiplying the offense through a false theology of the intellect. Too much is at stake for the church to entertain or indulge in intellectual enfeeblement. Thus, let countless intellects bloom and the church be served, the world reached, and may God be pleased. This has been Doug Grotheis. You have been involved with Truth Tribe. I can say it, name my own show, for about the last 25 minutes. And I've been reading a paper called Systematic Theology and Anti-Intellectualism. If you like this program, please tell your friends. Please also go to my webpage, douglasgrotheis.com. I have a weekly blog that you can sign up for. And also, I am available to speak to your church or Christian organization on subjects related to philosophy, apologetics, ethics, cultural criticism, and so on. Thank you for joining me. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. This is Chris Christensen, and back in 2006, I started a simple project, a project to try and introduce more people to the Bible through Bible study called the Bible Study Podcast. It's a simple name and a simple idea. Each week, every week, we study one chapter of the Bible, talk about what it says and what that might mean for us today. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for the Bible Study Podcast on your favorite podcast app.